Hey, you guys can turn to John chapter 8 now. And uh, for those of you, this is a good test. I won't make you raise your hand, but this is a good test for how many of you people follow what we say and put out online and different things. Because if you do follow those things, you were expecting uh, Pastor Chad to be starting us into a new series this week. And I said it last week too, um, uh, where we were going to pause from John and um, jump into a a short um, series called Who is the Church? And so that was the plan, and um, it is no longer the plan, um, because you got me. But here's why. So uh, if y'all don't know, Chad's wife, Heidi, her dad uh, passed away uh, Thursday morning, and so they are in Bowling Green, Kentucky, um, for visitation this afternoon and funeral tomorrow and uh, just being with family. So I encourage you to pray for Heidi and her family, and... uh, And we will come back to that series, but we are going to jump back into John chapter 8 for now. So that is our plan for today. So John chapter 8, we're going to read um, verses 1 through 11. See if you notice anything interesting around your text. Real quick, maybe does anybody not have the story of the woman caught in adultery in their Bible? Is it? Some of you, it may actually just be a footnote. So I will address that. We will come back to that, but that is what we're going to read today, John chapter 8. It is on page 894 in the Bibles there in the seat backs if you would like to use that one, and if you don't have one, you could take that one home. Let's look at this word together. It says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is after, maybe it makes sense to read 53 as well. They each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And this they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Even as I say that, there's some caveats coming. I do believe this is the word of the Lord, but with some explanation. And so uh, before we get into the actual passage, we've got to talk about the passage a little bit because it's unique. Um, and, and, and some of your Bibles may literally start um, with just going from um, chapter 7, verse 52, right to um, verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. And honestly, from a flow standpoint, that makes sense. And you'll see why in just a moment. But this passage is here in many of our Bibles. It is noted. It is famous. And so uh, I want to I talk to you about what, what do we do with it. And so here, if, if you're like, I don't know, because it may not be in some of your Bibles, but uh, right before chapter 8 starts and they've blocked 
53 down in there. Mine says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. So how many of your Bibles have something like that noted in there, a footnote? Anybody's have the whole thing as a footnote at the bottom? They don't even have it in the scripture. I'm just curious. There's no... It, there's nothing wrong with you if that's you. I'm just, I'm just actually kind of curious. Okay. Well, so here's the deal. This passage, this portion was not in the original manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Okay, it's not found in the original manuscripts, and there are a lot of copies of the original manuscripts of, of John, and this passage doesn't show up until like the 5th century um, when it comes to, you know, readings of the Gospel of John. And even when it does begin to show up in the writings of Scripture, it's not always in the same place. It's not always here in John chapter 8. Sometimes it's earlier in chapter 7. Sometimes it's in Luke 21. And, it, and so it finds itself in different places. Mo most of that is sort of settled. If, for most of common Bibles, they put it here and footnote it or, or whatever. But for a long time, you literally might find it in different places. We might be pointing to this story and you might be in different uh, places in your scripture because it, it found itself in different places. Uh, here's the short of it. It is believed uh, to have happened. It is believed to be a, a true story that, that did indeed happen with Jesus, but it is not believed to be amongst the most conservative scholars. They, the pretty, it's pretty much a consensus, which is why it's blocked off in, in most of our Bibles, that this did not belong in, G, in John's original gospel. Okay? There are a few reasons for that. One is simply the flow. It doesn't make a ton of sense in the flow of the conversation in chapter 7 and, and on into 8. Like, it makes more sense if you have it out, but that's not enough in and of itself. The language is different. But the biggest issue, the biggest reason we, we believe this is because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And so I don't have time to unpack a ton for you about the, you know, the how we get the authenticity of our scriptures and the historicity and the, the veracity of all of that. But I do want to take a moment because some will take a passage like this and say, see, you can't trust the New Testament. Had a couple of our students already starting, a couple of our graduates that have started into uh, university programs that have quickly realized, oh, there's, there's some... Uh, there's some interesting teachings going to be happening here. There's some, some direct indoctrination, even if you will. One of our students signed up for a, 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 New Testament, a class on New Testament at a state school and, and was, was kind of blindsided by the content there uh, by this Jewish scholar that really is, is there to, I say the word scholar loosely, but is there to kind of undermine the authenticity of the New Testament with his own agenda. And, and so this is not... Um, this matters, is what I'm really saying. It matters that we know what to do with a passage like this. It matters to know what to do with uh, a, a, what you might call uh, an inconsistency or discrepancy in the, the, the scriptures, and what do we do with that? And so I want to take just a moment. What do we, what do, we do with, a, with a passage like this? There's actually a similar passage in Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. It'll be similarly marked in your Bibles. It's not a part of the early manuscripts, okay? So uh, there are a couple of those in your Bible, and here's what do you do with it. Because what you shouldn't do is hear that and say, see, none of it can be trusted. That's actually not the case. You take an honest look. People that do that don't want to trust the Scriptures. They have an agenda. They want to move away. But if you take an honest look at whether or not the Scriptures can be trusted, then you will be confronted with some in incredible evidence. So I want to show you just briefly, um, and then we'll get back to the story. But I'm going to show you just briefly a, a chart here that, that shows us a little bit about the New Testament and the copies that we hold thereof, the, 
um, the earliest copies and the amount of copies, and you've probably heard something like this before, but when it comes to being compared to ancient um, text, ancient history literature or actual uh, fiction literature, uh, the, the, the amount of preservation that our New Testament holds stands head and shoulders and body, like way above anything else. And so just simply, you can look into this for yourself. There's a lot of good um, research on this, but just these are some writings from the first century. And you could, I won't go through them all, but you'll see a couple that you might recognize, like Caesar and, and some of his writings in Livy and, and, or Livy, and actually not sure now as I'm saying it, how you're supposed to say it, but the most common there you'll see down at the, uh, the third line here is, is Homer. Homer and, and his copy of the Iliad is, is the one that comes the closest to having the number of the, you know, to high number of copies of manuscripts, right? And, and even that, you see the approximate time between the original and the copy that we know of is, is around 500 years, and this was written back in 900 BC, and we got the earliest copy in 400. And then you get to the New Testament, and you see it's written between 50 and 100 AD, right? And we have the earliest copies really quickly, less than 100 years after that. And the number of copies on the conservative side of just the Greek New Testament just the Greek language New Testament copies is well over 5,000. Uh, you, you'll get a variant, you know, 6,400, something like that. You throw in the additional languages that are out there, and it goes up over 20,000 really quickly. And here's what that means for us, is that there is a lot of preservation that happened when it comes to the earliest copies of our scripture. And then to this passage, what you'll see is the, the, um, the accuracy of those copies. So they're able to compare all of those copies of those manuscripts, and they're able to see where there are variances and where there are differences. And some people use this as a way to undermine our faith and say, see, there's inconsistencies that can't be trusted. But actually, what you realize when you begin to examine that level of evidence is, yes, there are minor inconsistencies, but they actually prove to, to uh, validate our faith because they are actually serve to, to prove the, the original text in its authority. And none of those inconsistencies um, that we do have in those copies affect any major doctrine that we've built our faith on. They are minor at best. And, and this could be said the same is, is true here. This passage, you could leave it out and you don't actually lose anything uh, core or uh, close-handed to our faith. And so um, some, some um, commentaries that I have did that, that very thing. They just said, hey, we're here to tell you what the Gospel of John says, and we don't believe the Gospel of John has this story in it, so we're just going to skip it and go right to verse 12. Um, that's not my job. My job is to help you understand the Bible that you have before you. And so I, wanna, I, want, to, I want to go here for a moment. I want to talk to you about it, and I want you to know how to understand it. I want you to know what to do with things like this. But the, go back to that stat for me real quick, just Tyler, and I want you to see that the bottom right there, you might not be able to see it, but the accuracy of copies, uh, there's so few, uh, as, as, you know, you start going down that line, there's just ones and twos and tens and 20, really nothing substantial until you get to Homer, and his is just 643 copies that we have, and then you go to 5,600 at a conservative side uh, on the New Testament, and the accuracy of those copies is 95. The purity of that, those translations and that preservation is at is it 99.5%. So they are very minor differences that exist 
in those original copies. Okay? And this is actually not one of them because what we're saying is that this passage didn't actually exist in the original copies of John. It came later, didn't show up until like the 5th century. Okay, so here's what, you, what I want you to know. You could trust your scriptures. We could talk more about that. Chad and I have been talking about doing a podcast on that anyway, so we might come back to that, give you some more evidence for those of you that geek, get geeked out about uh, the study of, of the scriptures and, and the historicity of that. Some of you are like, already like, okay, cool, man, I get it. Uh, but, so we may come back to that, but, but for today, I want, I want you to know you, this is actually, things like this, when you take an honest look, an honest study, they confirm for you the veracity of our New Testament passages, uh, the, the trustworthiness of this Bible that we have before us. So now, what do we do <clears throat> with um, passages like this in Mark 16, where they are uh, noted, okay, I, I, they don't they don't show up in the earliest copies of John. <clears throat> well, uh, again, we don't want to build any core doctrines on them, right? We want to make sure Scripture interprets Scripture. And we, so we'll look, is there anything in this passage that, that uh, contradicts or would be new or different uh, about the character of God compared to the rest of the Word of God? And if so, we would want to discard that. We want to leave it aside. But there's actually nothing in this passage that would do that, it is believed by most conservative scholars, like I said earlier, to actually be a true story. It, there is significant um, preservation of this story um, that, that lead those scholars to believe this is actually something that happened. However, they just would not agree that it belongs in John here in this portion. But this is where it lies as we preach through, and it is beautiful, and it is meaningful, and so we're going to uh, <clears throat> jump into it today. But just to, just to wrap that up, uh, you need to uh, ha- take an objective look into the study of your, your scriptures and how we got them. Uh, the ESV uh, Study Bible has a great article in the back um, that... Um, and we have a couple extra copies of that here at the church, but you can get your own, or you can go online to the sv.org. There's a great copy there. There's some great studies that can be trusted to, to you know, confirm all of this for you. But here's what I want you to know is that God has shown incredible sovereign providence over the transmission process for his scriptures over the last 2,000 years. It's incredible that he's ordered things so that so few uncertainties remain, that the ones that do, they're so minor, as from a translation standpoint, the uncertainties that remain are so minor that they alter no doctrine of the Christian faith. That's really, really, really astonishing. When, you, when you're talking about inerrancy in its original language, and then you talk about people say, well, it's been translated and all that. Listen, the amount of manuscripts that are there, it's, it's really, it's laughable to try to compare it to anything else and to try to say that there's not consistency. It's just not there. So that should actually cause you to worship your God. It should cause you to rejoice in his providential sovereignty that he has brought us this incredible, reliable New Testament that stands above and beyond any other ancient text. It's awesome. It's actually really awesome. If so if you do have the, the, the unction to get into that, I think you'll find that it's awesome. Uh, but for now, I'm going to pause that and go back into the story. If you've got questions on that or specific things you'd like us to address or resources to point you to, you could see me afterward. I'd be glad to, to try to help you with that. So let's go back to, to what is this actual story then that, that we find ourselves. It's a famous story. Uh, you've probably heard it before. Uh, Jesus writing on the ground with his finger. There's a lot of debate about what does he write. This is a well-known story. So what do we do with this story? What does it do for us? So again, 
I'm not going to build our major doctrines on it, but I do believe that there's nothing contradictory. It's actually in line with the character that we know about the, our Father, uh, the rest of the Scripture, and Jesus himself. There's nothing in this that would say, oh, this doesn't feel right. And so we're going to lean in. We're going to let it speak um, to, to us this morning as, as a story about our Savior. And so it says this, uh, Everybody else goes to his own house. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He comes back to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down to teach them. And so I, I don't want to just buzz over that. I don't have time to unpack that as much as I'd like. I might do another podcast on this, too, because here's what you have is Jesus teaching people. This gets overlooked sometimes. Like, we know he was a teacher, but we kind of uh, hurry to the miracles, hurry to the, you know, to the doctrinal work, the propitiation, the resurrection, and all of those things that Jesus did, and, and for good reason. But sometimes we forget that he was actually teaching people, sitting with, well, actually, I don't know if you caught that. Who's sitting and who's standing in this context? We're going to switch it up. Here, the rabbis would sit and everybody else would stand. You know, like, I don't know. Well, it'd keep you from falling asleep. I'm just saying. <laughs> this is what they did. So the rabbi would sit down, everybody else would stand and listen. So, but Jesus is teaching. He's actually spending time. This is, the, this is the, the, the God of the universe, the great I am, the creator of the stars, has stepped into our world, and he doesn't just hurry up and say, okay, I've just got some work to do. If y'all could just watch this while I die, and then I'll be back in three days. No, no. He sets time. He, he enters in, and he's teaching He's teaching people. Here's the deal. We have to be, we are a people that are formed by information. We are taught, we are shaped, and, and, and you know, here's the deal. I'll just say this briefly, and maybe we'll come back to this another time, but uh, you are being discipled actively, whether you realize it or not. There is a world full of agenda and, like, you know, even just advertising agency, like there, there are people who are f- discipling you to think a certain way so that you will live a certain way and do certain things. So my question is, are you giving Jesus the time to actually form the way that you think and the way that you live? Because what we see here is that Jesus is taking time to teach. I think Here's one I want to major on at another time, maybe in a podcast, but this would actually transform our idea of a quiet time or setting aside time to, to read the Bible and just to do our you know, religious checklist if we realize, no, no, we need to let Jesus wash us in his water we, uh, of the word. We, we need to let Jesus transform us. And, and some people say, well, it sounds like brainwashing. Well, absolutely it is. Our brains need to be washed with the purest of the, the words that come from God, the Father, his scripture, so that we can be transformed and thinking rightly about this life that he has given us. And so I'm just, just as a side note, not major to the text, but I want you to hear, Jesus is a teacher. Jesus wants to teach you about life and about himself and about what he's called you to do. He wants to form your mind, heart, and soul. So he's teaching. 
That's the context. And in comes the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 3. So this is the religious people. These are the scribes are the educated people to, to, you know, to read the passage, translate it, all of those things. And the Pharisees kind of are religious rulers. They have this kind of political power. They tend to get close to those in politics, but they're not exclusively political, but they are religious leaders of this day. This is the, the clergy of the day, if you will, those that work for the temple. And so the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman in who had been caught in adultery. So this is the context. Jesus is set down as a rabbi would. He's teaching everybody standing there listening. And in come the uh, religious authorities of the day, and they've got a woman in tow. I don't know if she's covered up. I don't know if she's got a sheet on her, but she is being um, forcibly brought into the presence of this crowd of people. You need to feel that as we get going here. That scene is exactly as horrifying and awkward as you would think it is. It's all of those things. So they bring this woman who had been caught in adultery and they put her in the midst, right in there. It would be the equivalent of somebody busting through those doors with a woman in tow and putting her right here. And then they say to Jesus, hey, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, we're supposed to stone such a woman. What do you say? Verse 6 tells us their motives. They said this to test him, that they might have a charge to bring him against Jesus. So how is this a test? How is this a trap? They're setting a trap. Okay, again, this all tracks with the rest of the Bible, the re even the rest of John. You've already seen this sort of intention from the religious leaders where they're trying to set Jesus up. This only continues, and it's true in all the other Gospels. They hate him. They want to kill him. They are trying to find formal charges so that they can do that legally without getting themselves in trouble. And so this all tracks. As you're wondering, okay, is this, this passage that wasn't in the early manuscript, should we? This all tracks, right? This is, this is something that we see in the rest of the Bible. And so they're trying to trap him. How is this a trap? Well, if you will get into the context of the story. This is uh, a people that are Jewish by ethnicity and by heritage, but they are under what? Roman rule. But the Romans are a little bit different than other ancient authorities because when they would conquer a people, they would allow them some um, semblance of kind of self-rule and some, you know, freedom to have religious freedom and, and you know, have, have a, a level of autonomy as, as far as it will go. And so the Romans would allow people like the Jews to continue to worship their God, to do their own religious things, and even to have their kind of secondary government authorities, right? Their, their Herodian kings and things like that. The, the Roman government allowed this. And so, but what was, what was true in all of the Roman provinces that have been taken over, anybody under Roman rule, is that Roman rule, Roman law was the end-all, be-all, right? That Roman law was, had to be, uh, you, you, could, you could observe your own laws underneath that, but when it came to dispute, Roman law had to reign supreme. And so um, that included executing of the death penalty. You couldn't do that, the, the Jewish people couldn't do that on their own. Right? And this is actually, we know this, this is why Jesus was crucified, it was why he was killed on a cross instead of stoned. Because if it was up to Jews, they would have just, they would have thrown rocks at Jesus until he died. But instead he was crucified on a Roman cross. And so here, here's how they're setting this trap. Because 
It's a Jewish law. We'll see Deuteronomy 22 in just a moment and Leviticus. Uh, it's a Jewish law that someone is caught in adultery. They are to be put to death. But it's not a Roman law. See, it, the Romans don't have uh, a death penalty in place for someone who's caught in adultery. So the, the trap is for Jesus, hey, what, what are you going to do with her? Because if he says, well, the law of Moses says, says kill her, then they're going to run right to Roman authorities, aren't they? They're going to run right to the Roman authorities and tell them that this troublemaker named Jesus is, is not, uh, not abiding by Roman law that says only they can execute in their way and that you know, uh, underlings like the Jews couldn't do their own death penalty things and they're going to get Jesus taken care of by the Romans. Or, but on the other hand, if Jesus says, don't kill her, now they're going to run back to the religious conservatives back at the Sanhedrin and say, see, this guy's not upholding Moses' law. They're, he's not upholding Jewish law, and so he's not a good Jew. Our people shouldn't be following him. Either way, they think they've got Jesus trapped. They think they've got this set up. Either way, they think that he is trapped. Spoiler alert, you can't trap Jesus. Okay, It's not going to go well, but here's the beauty. Jesus doesn't just make a political dodging. He actually makes a decision. He actually makes a decision on, like, he doesn't just avoid each horn of the dilemma. He goes, you know what? You're right. Let the law of Moses be upheld. Kill her. He makes a decision. But then he does something remarkable. Because then he begins to go ahead and appoint their executioners, doesn't he? And he says something. It's crazy. He says, you know what? You go ahead. Whoever's in here without sin, you go ahead and step up to the line first. But even in the midst of this, there's this interesting thing. Because when they said this to, said this to him to test him, verse 6, um, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, like he doesn't hear them. Okay, I love this scene about Jesus. He doesn't acknowledge them. He, he just bends down and starts writing. And we know this because it says, and they continue to ask him, right? So the, they come in, and they're like, hey, teacher, what should you do? And Jesus just goes, just bends down and starts writing. And they're like, hey, teacher, what are you going to do? We're going to kill her or are we not? Jesus stands up from writing and he says in verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to writing on the ground. Now, here's what everybody wants to know. What's he writing? And I wish the Bible told us. I'll give you my guess in a bit. But here's the scene. These are religious people using the law, which was given by God for the good of his people. But they're using it, not for the good of the people, but for their own agenda. And not only are they using the law, 
They're using this woman. Now, is she an adulteress? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the law says you, you can't confirm this. You can't bring an accusation against somebody of being adulterous unless you physically see them with your eyes, not only in bed, but actually in the act. And there had to be a witness. So I don't know who gets this gig or who does that work of going around trying to catch people. But that's how it had to go down. If you were going to kill somebody for adultery, two people had to see it with their eyes and see the actual act. Not just leaving a house, not just in a a suspect place together, but actual act. And so is she an adulteress? Yeah, it seems as though she is. But here's the question. Where's the man? And maybe, maybe that's what Jesus wrote. That'd be a pretty baller move, I think, if that's what he wrote in the sand. Where's your man? Because that's supposed to matter. Deuteronomy 22, 22. I think Tyler's got this one for us, but it just, it's simply, this is the law. It's in Leviticus 19 as well, but this is the law that they're holding up. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. God, again, is never, okay, we said this last week, God is never trying to steal from us when he gives us commands. He's always trying to lead us to life. In this moment, he's forming a nation for himself, and he wants to be very, he is very aggressive about purging evil from among them. This is why he is so intentional about having them cast out all the existing people in the land that they come into and killing them because there's evil and there's sin and he wants for himself a people that live purely uh, by his law so that it will go well for them. So this is, this is why this is written, but notice that it is written in such a way, it doesn't just say, okay, when you catch two people in adultery, you, you, you pull the woman out and you're gonna kill her. No, it says both of them shall die. And you can't commit adultery without another person. Like, it, it requires to. So where's the man? We don't know. We know these guys are cowards. Maybe they're scared of that guy. Maybe that guy was actually powerful. Maybe they didn't want to deal with him. Maybe he got away. But nonetheless, they're using this woman, aren't they? They're using God's scripture and they're using this woman. They don't care about the evil in Israel. They don't care about the good of God's people. They don't care about the the glory of God. They care about their own agenda and they're trying to use this woman to get rid of this troublemaker that is threatening their power. And they're using this woman. Make no mistake about it. They're absolutely using this woman. I don't want you to feel the weight of what they have done. They have brought her, no doubt, indisposed. Again, I don't know if she's got some kind of cloak, some kind of covering. I don't know. Maybe stark naked, but no doubt indisposed into the equivalent of exactly the kind of room you're sitting in here with a crowd of people looking at a single man as he's teaching, and they put her there. Can you think of anything more humiliating than to be exposed in your sin in that way And this is exactly what they did to this woman. And how does Jesus respond? Again, he won't cater to their trap. He says, yeah, you're right. Let the law of Moses be upheld. And go ahead. Whoever of you 
got no sin, you go ahead and be first. So you just need to note real quick, Jesus doesn't say that her sin is no big deal. Okay? He doesn't say, you know what? Dad was a little grumpy when he wrote that old adultery law. It's a little aggressive. We don't need to kill anybody. Party on. That's how some people want to paint Jesus. That's how some people want to paint the New Testament. God was angry when he wrote the New Testament. And the new loving, you know, kind God shows up in Jesus. And he's not big on killing everybody. No, no. We know that Jesus has thoughts in adultery. We know that he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We're not here to say, this no longer matters, this no longer matters, go ahead and do this. No, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it in its fullness. And we also know that in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, y'all know that thing about adultery that leads to death? When you sleep with someone that's not your spouse, that leads to death? Well, let me just tell you, when you think about it, when you lust about it, when you undress someone with your eyes, when you look at porn, when you go there, when you go there mentally, guess what? You've already committed adultery in your heart. So let's not get it wrong. Jesus is not here to say, meh, don't worry about that whole adultery thing. Let's give her a pass, guys. That's not what he says. Not what he says at all. It's verified by the end when he says, hey, go and sin no more. He's calling sin, sin. He's upholding the law of God, but he's going to apply it without prejudice. And that's actually what he does. Because here's some evil men that want to use this woman. We don't know her story, but they want to use this woman in her worst moment to get what they want. That's how we treat the law sometimes, isn't it? Here, we're Bible Belt people. There's some sins that you just can't tolerate here. But there's some sins that's, eh. Right? I mean, let's be honest. As a culture, there are sins that we've considered not that big a deal. This was a Baptist church. I'd talk about the, the buffet line and fried chicken and gluttony, right? That's the, that's the go-to that I said under growing up. But there are sins that, you know, here the journey, you know, like we don't condemn alcohol because we believe it's a gift from God when used rightly in moderation. So there, de- there develops a little subculture in a church like ours where all of a sudden we're no longer really upset when people drink too much either. We kind of let it go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So-and-so probably had a little too much. I probably had a little, but yeah. Right? So, so we, we, we make certain sins more palatable, more acceptable than others. But man, how dare you? And listen, I've had that used against me as a pastor. Whoa, you're willing to have a drink? You're, you're going to have a beer? Like, I mean, I know that, I know that the Bible says, but... I mean, you shouldn't be a leader. And do, I'm like, okay. Like, so I've had those sorts of things used against me. But then we do the same thing. We just pivot to whatever we're most comfortable with, and we will use the law of God to outright scandalize somebody else because their sin 
is way worse. Their sin is something that we would never do. I would never be associated with a church like that. I would never be associated with, with, with people like that. I, and we've had people stop coming to our church because they know what so-and-so sitting across them has done. We know their story. We know their history. How dare you let somebody like that lead a community group whenever we know their story? Like, we've had things said like that, and I'm just going like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you're reading. Because when the law of God is brought out, it is a law that absolutely humbles everybody in its hearing, not just some. If you're able to hear the teaching of the scripture, the Old Testament, and the the Ten Commandments and feel puffed up, then you're hearing it wrong. You have read it wrong. Because what it's meant to do is actually bring us all to a place of humility where we all realize we have a need for a Savior. So here's my guess at what Jesus wrote. It's a guess. It's not authoritative. But I think it checks out. Because what have we already seen from Jesus? He knows what men are thinking. He knows their hearts. He knows their stories. We've seen him on, I think, three occasions already in the Gospel of John call people out for their thoughts and their murmurings that he clearly couldn't hear, right? Here's what I think he might have done. He's got a room full of people eager to use this woman to get what they want. And I think Jesus starts looking at him and turns around and writes embezzlement, lust, maybe even writes the name of their mistress that nobody's outed them on yet, pride. Gossip, false witness. You see, Jesus sees a woman exposed in her worst moment. He says, you want to call people out? Let's use the law rightly. And it says, verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one. So the combination of what he's written and then when he says, let, let the one who's got no sin, you go, y'all go ahead and come to the front. Be the first to throw your stones. The combination of that statement combined with whatever he wrote, and we don't know, but whatever he wrote combined with that statement leads to this. They went away one by one. Interesting, beginning with the older ones. until Jesus is left alone with the woman standing before him, which in and of itself is a scandal. No self-respecting man is supposed to be alone with a woman in public, certainly when she's not covered up well, certainly not when he's a rabbi. Jesus stands up and he speaks to her. You think anybody had talked to her yet? You think anybody had humanized her 
Jesus does. He speaks to her. And he says, hey, hey where'd they go? Has, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. Yeah, here's the deal. In that moment, Jesus could have said, but we ain't done. Because I do. I condemn you. Because whatever Jesus wrote in the sand and whatever he said to the, and what he said to them removed everybody else's pretense about being the righteous one that could execute that judgment. But guess what? Jesus is still there. And he would have been within his full rights as the only righteous man in that moment and the only righteous person on the earth. He would have been within his full rights to absolutely kill her. You understand that, right? He, he has removed everybody else from the equation, but now she stands face to face with Jesus, the Holy One. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is Jesus' kingdom. It's not a kingdom where sin doesn't matter. It's not a kingdom where adultery gets brushed off. It's a kingdom where transformation happens. Because he tells her, go and, and, and sin no more. Not sin no more so much as, you know, to avoid being stoned again, but, but, but go and sin no more because you've just met God and you've been rescued by his grace, saved by grace. This is what has the power to transform. Some of you are desperately trying to be the best version of you. You're trying to be a better human by avoiding bad behavior based on its consequences. You don't want people to look at you differently. You don't want to be outed as this or that. You're trying to be better and modify your behavior based on consequences. And it will never work. Only when we stand face to face with a holy God and we realize we are her. I, I am, I'm her. I've sinned. You are her. You see, the right response before the law of God is not, see, get him. The right response before the law of God is much more like what we see from Isaiah when he is in the throne room of God. Isaiah is not an adulterer. He's not indisposed in the way that this woman is. But before a holy God, he knows. He knows that he's a sinner that has no hope, no reason to be able to stand before this king. None. And until we see ourselves as the woman, until we see ourselves like Isaiah, as unworthy to stand before a holy God, 
we cannot encounter the incredible mercy and grace that Jesus hands out. Because if we don't go there first, then we cheapen the grace that he so freely gives. If we say adultery is no big deal, see, Jesus is just a loving person, he doesn't want to get mad at anybody, then we, we cheapen the grace that he hands out. But when we realize that he is both full of grace and truth, that he absolutely says, yeah, the law of Moses needs to be upheld. Y'all go ahead and pelt her with stones until she's dead. Until you realize that's what you deserve. You can't experience the transforming grace that Jesus has. We say it often, we quote Tim Keller when we say, man, the gospel is that we are far worse than we would ever dare imagine or admit. But at the same time, his grace and his love is far better than we dare ever imagine or presume upon. It's only there at the intersection of our sin and our unworthiness and Jesus' incredible worthiness and righteousness do we experience the power of a transforming relationship with this generous God. You can't try harder and do better. Avoiding consequences will help you for a little while. But if you don't deal with what is aching inside of you, you don't take the deepest parts of your soul to Jesus, then you're just, you're just pruning uh, fruit off a tree instead of dealing with the root. Jesus says, I, I got the whole deal here. Go and, and, and sin no more. Not because you're afraid of being stoned, but because you just stood face to face with the only one who could condemn you. And I say, you're forgiven. I don't know where you put yourself in the scale of morality compared to other people. I don't know what you think you're going to appeal to when you stand before Jesus. But let me just tell you, there are none who are good. There are none who are able to stand and say, well, yeah, but I'm better than so-and-so. He says, no, no, your righteousness is like filthy rags to me. Until you see yourself like this woman, only him and her in the space, she is fully condemned before this Savior, and yet he is able to forgive her. Why? Because he's going to take his condemn her condemnation upon himself. Her condemnation doesn't just vanish. He doesn't just dismiss it. He takes it. My condemnation wasn't just brushed off. It was taken by Jesus. And canceled on the cross. This is redeeming love. This is transforming grace. This is our Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I I ask that you would um, send your spirit.
to convict us, to remind us that we are just as condemned, just as guilty, and just as hopeless as this woman that we see in this passage. Because it's only there are we able to appreciate and be transformed by the goodness of your incredible mercy and grace. So may you be exalted this morning as we consider our worth compared to your gift. Would you use this powerful message of grace that we find in this passage, that you use it to set the captives free? those who are hiding and and going all out to keep people from seeing who they really are so that they won't be exposed the way that this woman was. Father, would you just kindly call them out this morning? So that you can call them to yourself and set them free. May the rest of us be humbled full of compassion, and set out on mission to tell this good news to as many who would hear. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.